Bibles tonight and find the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter number one. We're going to begin there this evening. We're going to continue, of course, studying this subject of forgiveness. And I know we didn't have service last week, so uh, we dealt with the need of forgiveness. I won't do much by way of review tonight, but we are looking at why forgiveness is important. Uh, Why does it matter? And when we think about forgiveness of sin, all of us would agree that uh, we realize that uh, we need forgiveness. But why do we need forgiveness? What is it about forgiveness uh, that is required? Now, we might say tonight we need forgiveness so we can go to heaven. Uh, We might say we need forgiveness so that we can enjoy the benefits of God. But the reality is, is sin... Uh, is so hated by God uh, that it's more than just a way to get our, uh, so to speak, our ticket punched to heaven. And I mean no irreverence by that, but uh, it's more than that. Uh, There is a great desire in God to forgive sin. Sin is not something that uh, ought to be trifled with. It is not something that we ought to uh, think God looks upon lightly or that God has degrees of sin to where he says some sins are worse than others. Sin is sin in the eyes of God. And when we think about that, we we need to understand that uh, it's not just simply uh, doing something bad. Uh, It is literally that which sent Christ to the cross. Jesus went to the cross because of our sin. So we know that we need it. We know that all man needs sin because we all are needs forgiveness for sin because we would stand in eternal damnation if our sins were not forgiven. So tonight we want to deal with the path of forgiveness. And we don't mean a literal path as far as a path that we walk on or a path that we uh, might ride a bike on, but we want to understand what is this path of forgiveness? Where is, what is this path? And where is it to be found? In the book of Colossians, uh, Colossians chapter number one, we have the Apostle Paul is greeting a church. He's greeting believers at a place called Colossae. He begins this letter, and we're not going to, of course, look at the whole letter tonight, the whole book, but he begins this letter by thanking them, thanking God for their faithfulness, and he is interceding for them. In other words, he is, he is going to God on their behalf. Paul, in the first chapter, the primary purpose of that chapter is to declare and to remind the people, the believers at Colossae, of the supremacy of Christ. Uh, the supremacy uh, over all things. The created order, but also his supremacy in redemption. And we know that because of the forgiveness of sin, we know that there is what we refer to as redemption or to have our uh, be purchased by God. So I want you to go to verse number, uh, let's begin uh, in verse number nine and, and begin reading there. And uh, Paul, as he has, he's, he's reminded them of the goodness of God. And now he begins to acknowledge uh, what he is uh, praying for them about. Uh, he, he shares his prayer for the people. Verse 9, he says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, 
being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Now notice very carefully, Paul reminds them of why and how they become partakers of this inheritance. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom, this is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So Paul makes an acknowledgement that it is in him or it is in Christ that we have what verse 14 says, redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So when we think about this redemption and how that ties to forgiveness of sin, let's be reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ himself, out of his great love and his great compassion, made a complete and full purchase. In other words, he purchased to the satisfaction of God the Father the payment for sin. Now, it was a full payment made. The payment was Christ. The payment was the shedding of his blood. He went to the cross, and he bled and he died for our sin in our place. He offered himself, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice, not just a general sacrifice, but our sacrifice. He allowed the wrath of God to be poured out upon him. So God the Father poured out what we deserved on the head of his own son. Why was that wrath being poured out? That wrath was being poured out for our sins. So Jesus Christ as our substitute, which we, we understand that, he gave himself for us, suffered for us, and died for us. The Bible refers to his death as the death of the just for the unjust, the innocent for the guilty, you might say, that he might deliver us from the curse of the law. The curse of the law is that we could not keep it, and he provides a complete pardon for all who will receive it. So there's only one path, there's only one way, and there's only one person that we may go to for a complete pardon. To be forgiven is to be pardoned. It is a sure path. It is a certain path. And it is the path that every single person who desires to be saved must follow. That path is simply to trust in the finished work of what Christ has already done. Complete satisfaction. He's already paid it. So it is literally the forgiveness of sin. The path is to cast all of your soul with all of its sin, with all of its corruption, with all of its depravity, and to simply trust Christ alone. It is to cease completely from any dependence upon your own works. It is to cease completely from depending upon your own uh, ideas and to rest fully on the finished work of Christ. There is no other righteousness that can be found except the righteousness that is found in what Christ righteousness. We have no merit, only his merit, and we have 
only him to place our hope in. So that path of Christ is the only path for the forgiven or the pardoned soul. Now, there are some verses we want to look at tonight that are outside of the book of Colossians. And I'm just going to kind of read these. I'm not going to have you turn there. But these are our verses that refer to this forgiveness. Peter says in Acts chapter number 10, verse 43, about Christ, he says, Give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Now, remission is the removal of, the forgiveness of guilt and being removed. Paul says in Acts 13, 38, through this man, Christ is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, all that believe are justified from all things. So Paul says that this Christ who's preached unto you is the forgiveness of sins. Okay, Jesus is not just a way of forgiveness. He is the forgiveness of sins. Now, that's quite different what I just said. He's not just a way of forgiveness. He is forgiveness. John the Baptist said, he taketh away. Remember, he said when our study in the book of John, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Paul uses expressions in his epistles various times. He says he purged our sins or put away sins. Even in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, Daniel says he makes an end of sins and finishes the transgressions. And we see references in Isaiah 53.11, John 1.29, Hebrews 1.3, Hebrews 9.26, and Daniel 9.24, all that gives support that this forgiveness of sins is found in Christ. So Christ in one simple word, or Christ in one word, has purchased or is the full forgiveness. Okay, Christ is forgiveness. He is the path of forgiveness. But man has to be willing to acknowledge that and receive that. Now again, Christ has already finished the work. He's already completed it. So this path of forgiveness... We're going to go back to Colossians 1 here in just a minute. We're going to go further in this first chapter and then even into chapter number 2. But let's think about what Christ as this path of forgiveness means. Simply, it means Christ has done all. He's paid all. He has suffered all that is needed to reconcile a sinner, you and me, to God. Christ has done that. So reconciliation is to be put back in a proper relationship with. God doesn't reconcile himself to us. We must be reconciled to God. We're the sinner, not God. So Christ is that path. Now, Paul, in our letter, or the first chapter here, the letter to the Colossians, right after he says in verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, he goes on to describe who Christ is. He says in verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. 
And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Remember, these are all references to Christ. Verse 18 of Colossians 1. And he is the head of the body, the church. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he, again, Christ, might have the preeminence. Now here's where we start to really narrow this down to where Paul is writing and saying, here's how Christ is that path. For it pleased the Father that in him, again, Christ, should all fullness dwell. Okay, now what what does the word fullness mean? Now this is important because the word fullness here is literally what Paul is telling us is that all the glory... And all the majesty of God dwells in Jesus. Okay, so the Father, it pleased the Father to put all the glory and all the majesty of God in Jesus. That's what verse 19 means. And, notice verse 20, having made peace through the blood of his cross... By him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. So notice that phrase, peace through the blood of his cross. This literally means, taking this in context, Christ reconciles sinners to God by the very nature and virtue of his life and his death. Okay? With Christ, there must be life and there must be death in order for there to be forgiveness. Christ is supreme over all creation. Paul's been writing that in this part of the letter. He is not only supreme over creation, but over the new creation. If it were not for Christ, all of creation would suffer and die without him. Christ literally magnifies the grace and the mercy of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In Christ, we have all things, including the forgiveness of sins. So Christ has done this. Number two, in this path of forgiveness, Christ has provided a garment of righteousness. He's provided a garment of Something to put in its place. Look what he says in verse 20, uh, the rest of verse 20. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you, Paul's writing to those at Colossae, believers that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconcile. The he again is Christ. Christ has reconciled even the wicked who was alienated and who was an enemy of God. Ultimately, what does sin do? Sin alienates or separates human beings from God. It is the thing that is the barrier. Everybody understand? So sin is what makes us Pardon the English, not God. Right? Okay? Among many other things. But only God is sinless. So there is no other sinless human being who's ever lived. 
Now, Jesus Christ became a man without ceasing to be God. So that's why it would be a false doctrine to say that Jesus Christ came to this earth and he sinned. No, he became sin for us. He became the substitute. He didn't sin. If Jesus could have committed a single sin, he would cease to have been God. So the only thing keeping us, and I don't say that lightly, us and God is sin. So in order to have access to God, I have to have that sin removed. That's reconciliation. So I have to be reconciled to God. Through Christ's death and resurrection, those very events is what reconciled sinners. And we are restored to peace with God through Jesus Christ. Now, Christ provided a garment. Where's, you say, preacher, where's that garment? Look at verse 22. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. This is the work or the power of Christ in redemption. Now, we don't see actual clothing here, okay? So this righteous garment is not a garment that we physically put on like a sweater or a coat or a jacket or a shirt. But notice what it says. In the body of his flesh, that's Christ, through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. To be holy, unblameable, and unreprovable means my sins have been forgiven. That's my righteousness. Now, I say that very loosely. It's not my righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness that has been put on me. The only reason I can stand in the sight of God, holy, unblameable, and unreprovable, is because God the Father sees his sinless Son. That's the forgiveness of sin. To have Christ's righteousness on means I have been forgiven. So tonight, if you've been forgiven for your sin, if you are a believer in Christ, you wear a righteous garment. That garment is what makes you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. To be unreprovable means there is nothing that could push you away. That barrier of sin's been removed. Remission. That's the power of Christ's work in redemption. He not only restores peace by reconciling sinners to God, he transforms them in order that he might present them as holy and without blame and without reproof. In Christ, we cannot be reproved. No one who has been forgiven of sin can be pushed out away from God or can have that peace disturbed again. If you're in saved tonight, you now have peace with God that is eternal and it's everlasting. Forgiveness of sin is not just for an hour. It's not just for a week. It's not just for a lifetime. It's for all of eternity. That's forgiveness of sin. So Christ has done this. So what has he done on this, as this path of forgiveness? Christ has removed every barrier between ourselves as sinners and God the Father. On a typical path that you might walk on, on a path you might ride a bike on, along that path, there are times when an obstacle will come up. 
Okay, you might be you may be walking on a on a walking path and there's a rock or there's a stump or a branch. Something's in the path. And while you're on that, you have to go around it, or you gotta step over it, or you stumble over it. Jesus Christ has literally taken away all the obstacles. Those obstacles that were in the way between us and God the Father have been removed. So who can be on that path? The vilest of sinners. On that path is not just the better, the good. On that same path that are all going to Jesus, it is all of, the, even the most vile of sinners is on that path. And even the obstacles that we think should be there for them have been removed. Because Christ has removed the obstacles. It is by faith the only thing required in order for you and I to be forgiven is faith in the finished work of Christ. We come by faith to Jesus, sin and all. I don't come to Jesus and say, I'm going to get rid of my sins first and I'm coming to you. No, we're coming to Jesus carrying a, a, the weight and the burden of every sin we've ever committed. We're coming right to Christ with him. Because even if we tried to throw some of it off, we'd still be sinners. Even if you could pick the worst of your sins and cast it away, you'd still not be worthy of Christ. So you come to Christ with all of your sin baggage. You bring it all. You don't, you, you don't take any of it off. You, you bring it to him. You trust that he removes it. You trust that he will take it away. We commit our very souls to him. That's all God asks for. All God asks for is that you cast everything on Christ. If a man does this, he's saved. His iniquities, his sin, shall be found to have been completely wiped away, pardoned, and his transgressions, all that weight he was carrying, have been removed as far as the east is from the west. So look again. Now go over to chapter number 2. And look at verse number 9. Now, we, we're not carrying all of what he's saying here. But in Colossians 2, he revisits this after talking about some false teachers. Okay, he has to remind them, the false teachers that had gotten in, and he has to remind them again, remember that your salvation and your redemption, where it really is. In verse 9 of chapter 2. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. There's that word fullness again. And ye are complete in him. Notice that phrase. Complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. So Christ is fully God made visible. Okay? What Christ was is God being made visible in the flesh. So Paul reminds these believers at Colossae that true knowledge and wisdom are to be found in Christ alone. All the fullness dwells there. But to be complete in him, that's, that is one of those defining statements in the Bible. Something that's complete needs nothing added to it. You, he says, are complete in him. That means everything a believer needs is found in Christ. When you are forgiven of sin, you are in a complete union with Christ. 
It's not a partial union. It's not a divided union. It is complete union with Christ. So Christ is supreme over all things. It would be crazy to try to seek fullness in anything or anyone else. Well, what he says in verse 11, in whom also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, Paul's addressing this circumcision and he's focusing on the spiritual significance of it, not just the act of circumcision. We're not going to go into detail about that tonight, but uh, Christ, uh, the circumcision was to be a spiritual picture of the sins of the flesh being cut off. Okay, so that when you when you think about the spiritual significance of circumcision, it it was a picture of sins of the flesh being cut, being removed. And then he ties this with baptism, verse twelve: buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. So Paul's taken the spiritual significance of circumcision. He's taken the spiritual significance of baptism. And he links baptism and circumcision together. What's he doing? The very essence of both of those rites, circumcision and baptism, is who? Christ. They are, they are both meant, they are both meant to show us that the believer who is circumcised in Christ, in other words, who has had their sins of the flesh cut off, is also buried with Christ in baptism. Baptism points to what has already taken place. When the baptismal waters are stirred, it's not the washing away of sins that's taking place then. It's a picture that the sins have already been washed away. So circumcision and baptism is the combination of this, that being risen with Christ is to say that sin no longer reigns or has dominion over that individual. That's the purpose. And again, that's a very simplistic idea and principle of what circumcision and baptism means. We could spend a lot of time in that. Now, look what he says in verse 13, because this is key. And again, if you would have just picked this verse, you would have said, preacher, what are you talking about? Verse 13, and you, remember he's mentioned baptism and circumcision, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him Having forgiven you, how many trespasses? All trespasses. So the result of being circumcised in Christ, having the sins of the flesh cut off and buried with him in baptism is forgiveness. That's the idea. So when our sins are cut off from the flesh, and we've been buried with him in baptism, not baptism saving. It is the picture. It is forgiveness. Now again, look, what he, look he goes one step further. Remember, Christ has removed all, this, all the paths. He's removed all the obstacles. Verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Here's an interesting phrase. The handwriting of ordinances. Literally, this is the handwritten record of debt. Sinners are in debt. We accrue this debt by our sin. 
What Paul is saying right here is the debt of that handwritten record of your debts has been blotted out. It's been removed. It's been obliterated. Notice who they were against. Against us. The debt of sin condemns us. It condemns the sinner. However, what did Christ do? Took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So Christ, here's what he did, graciously takes, he took the debt that was written against us. Okay? He takes that debt written against us and nailed it to the cross. You say, preacher, was there literally a paper with our debt written? No, it's, it's a picture. But when, when, he, when he went to the cross, he took that debt out of his great love. It was nailed to the cross in his sacrifice, in his substitutionary death. Christ paid the penalty of sin and canceled the debt. So that handwritten record that was against you, it's been canceled. That's forgiveness of sins. The handwritten debt, what you owed. What did you, what should you, what did you deserve? The wages of sin is what? Death. So he took that away. And then I love this. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Christ's death conquered all spiritual powers of evil. He forgave us of our sin, yes, but he also conquered every spiritual evil. But you hear me say it often, the devil is now a defeated foe. He made a show of them openly. Folks, here's the reality of this. The death of Christ was a public showing of the victory of Christ over sin and the defeat of Satan and the powers of evil and it was a exposing them. It exposed their disgrace. In other words, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he also exposed the devil and every power of evil. So Christ has removed every barrier. Every man and woman that trust, is whole, trust in Christ is completely and totally forgiven and counted perfectly righteous. Sins are clean, they are gone, they've been cleansed. The soul is justified. I stand in the sight of God, no matter how bad I might have been, no matter how bad I can still be, no matter how guilty I used to be, I stand in the face of God, I can stand before him redeemed because my sins have been forgiven. Now, the forgiveness of sin is what Paul has been talking about here. He's been reminding them of what it is to have the sins forgiven. So this is the path of forgiveness. Now, let's secondly, and this won't be nearly as long, but let's deal with the perfectness of this path. Why is this path perfect? Well, it's perfect because there's a perfect Christ. There's a perfect God. It is also the doctrine of forgiveness is the true strength of any Bible preaching church. Okay, if a church does not preach forgiveness, it has no strength. 
It's not in what we do. It's not in our order of service. It's not in our programs. It's not even in our Bible knowledge that will keep a church alive and proclaiming truth. It is only in the free forgiveness that is made available to all, okay, that's found in Christ. That's why, folks, anybody who walks in the front doors of this church, we preach free forgiveness to all. Now, again, we take out all the other doctrines we've talked about and just get down to the very core. If we're not preaching forgiveness of sins, then we don't have a message. Plain and simple. Now, in the mysterious works of God, how God does all that he does, we don't know that. But we proclaim forgiveness. That here's the path. Jesus is the way. And we make that available to all. That's the strength of any church. Even Jesus, when he told Peter about, upon this rock, I will build my church. And what did he say? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So this perfect path is a path that the church that is going to be strong has to preach. It's forgiveness through Christ, free forgiveness. It's the doctrine that all churches must preach. It is what pulls down the kingdom of Satan. It is the one thing Satan hates the most is to preach forgiveness. Okay? If you start preaching forgiveness, you better believe Satan and his demons hate that. Because what his desire is, is to keep man in bondage to the old things. And, and one of the most dangerous places that this happens is in a church. Because what we could see happen is someone could say, well, I, I just don't believe that it's in Christ alone. I think I have to do this, this. The devil loves when you try to find your strength in anything but the forgiveness of sin. That's plain and simple. Preach salvation by good works. Exalt the church above Christ. Refuse to preach the doctrine of the atonement and forgiveness. And the devil is not even bothered because you're just helping his cause. But when you start preaching free forgiveness, preach a full Christ, preach a free pardon by simple faith in him, Satan is going to pour out great wrath because he knows his time is short. Remember, the devil was defeated at Calvary. Now, we may not see it because he's still alive and well, and he's still loose for a season, and he's still active, but he's already defeated, and his day is coming because of what Christ did on the cross, because of forgiveness of sins. This perfectness of faith, the perfectness of this path also, it's the, old, the doctrine of forgiveness is the only doctrine that will ever bring true peace to a convicted soul. What other hope could I give an individual if I said this? You have everything except forgiveness of sins. Then we have nothing. Because if I don't have forgiveness, all my other church stuff doesn't matter. Because if you remove forgiveness out of the equation, I don't have anything. A man can get along pretty well as long as he's unaware of his spiritual condition. In other words, a man can live his whole life never once thinking about sin. So why do we even preach sin? Because man should be awakened to his need. 
You say, I thought salvation is of the Lord. It is of the Lord, but Jesus Christ has chosen preaching as the way to open the eyes of the blind. That's why when people come into this church, they are going to hear about the reality of their sin and their need of a Savior. Not only are they going to hear it preached from a pulpit, they're going to hear it sung from a hymnal. They're going to hear songs that speak about the reality of their sin and their need of a Savior. That's the very essence of what a church is to be. When a man is awakened out of his spiritual sleep, when he realizes there is sin in him, the only thing that will ever bring peace is knowing his sins can be forgiven. Okay, true peace is only found when your sins are forgiven. So the question we want to ask ourselves tonight is very simply this. Have you truly receive the forgiveness of sins through Christ. If you have, you know it. You're not trusting in anything or anyone other than Christ because you know he is the only path to the Father. So anybody who thinks I can get to God some other way, I can get to God through some other path, will find themselves not just making an earthly mistake, but making an eternal mistake. So if I for one minute believe that I can get to God on some other path other than the path of Jesus Christ, I am already and right there presently in eternal danger. When someone comes into our church, they ought to know what our church believes about the forgiveness of sin. They ought to know this church believes that there is forgiveness of sin. Not only is there forgiveness, it's necessary that every human being who walks through the front door needs forgiveness of sins. That's what Paul was trying to remind the church at Colossae about. Now, there are churches you could go into, and again, the point of this tonight is not to say it's this church over here, this church over here, but there are churches you could go in that might look like this. They might have a pulpit, they might have pianos, they might have pews, they might have offering plates, they may have everything that we have in this building. However, when you go to see is Christ being preached, you never find him. When we have even on one of our slides that says we preach Christ, what, is, what are we doing with that? We're saying we preach a crucified Savior who is the forgiveness of sins. That's what it means. It's not just we preach about a man who lived a good life. A church could even use that as their motto. They could say, we preach Christ. But if they're going to preach Christ, then they must preach the forgiveness of sins. Because without the forgiveness of sins, you're not preaching Christ. Outward ceremonies are not preaching Christ. Being baptized alone is not preaching Christ. Having all religious activity, having things going on every night of the week without forgiveness of sins being preached is not preaching Christ. Now, all those other things can be good. And folks, maybe someday that's what this church will do. We could get to that place where we do have a lot of things going on. But if we get a lot of things going on, but we stop preaching Christ and the forgiveness of sin, we're going to be in big, big trouble. Because that's what we're supposed to be preaching. So there's a very simple, single test that we could put towards our church and put towards even us as individuals. Is Jesus Christ and the free forgiveness of sins being proclaimed? 
If it's being proclaimed here, then we know we're preaching Christ. But don't be fooled. It's not just how comfortable the church is. It's not just about is the singing good. It's not just about are the sermons good. Listen, there are many, many preachers out there who can preach a lot better sermons than I can preach. But if they're not preaching Christ and him crucified and the free offer of the forgiveness of sins, that sermon may be eloquent, it may be perfect, it may be, he may not stumble over a single word. But if he's not preaching the full forgiveness of sins found in Jesus Christ alone, he's not preaching the Bible. And if we find ourselves in a place like that or a church like that, I would tell us we need to run quickly away from that. Because folks, the devil loves nothing more than religious activity without Christ being preached. And I know there's a lot of things going on. There are churches who are doing a lot of good things for communities. There's churches that are doing a lot of things. And, and folks, you, you know, I, I would love to do some of those things. And some of those things we need to be involved in. But I will tell you this, those, that is not a substitute for preaching what man's greatest need is, and that's to have his sins forgiven. You know, we could feed every hungry person in this town, but if we don't give them and preach forgiveness of sins, we will have done them a great disservice. We really have. You can't feed even a physically hungry soul without feeding their eternal soul, without saying, listen, there's something more important than physical food. You need forgiveness. You need to have your sins forgiven. That one single test we've got to ask ourselves, is Jesus and the free forgiveness of sins being preached? And do I claim that? Do I believe that? So next week, we'll kind of continue on this thought of, of forgiveness and how it leads us. But as we think about this, this path and think about why it's important, why do we need sin? Uh, let's not forget even the words of the Apostle Paul, who, who I believe he, he gives us, to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us a perfect way to see and understand why this is so important. All right? Let's go ahead and stand together.